Well, good morning, Payson Bible Church, and happy Resurrection Day to you. It's a bummer that you're not here to respond when I say, He is risen. But I trust that some of you just said, He is risen indeed. And that is a truth that transcends any kind of circumstances that we might find ourselves in, including this one. Christ is risen. He is our hope. His resurrection is our hope for eternal life, and we hold on to that truth as a foundational aspect of the gospel, that Jesus is risen, and one day we will rise to reign with Him forever. Isn't that a glorious and amazing uh, reality? Well, today we will not be doing an Easter-themed or Resurrection Day-themed message, but instead we will be back in the book of Deuteronomy. So though I am dressed for Easter, uh, I am prepared to preach from Deuteronomy, and that's what we'll be doing today. And if you want to grab your Bible, that would be great to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14. We are going to hear more from the law today and uh, understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of certain aspects of the law. Um, Something that is um, interesting that God has done this week is, though we have postponed our Resurrection Day celebration in person, uh, I should mention, by the way, that the next time we gather together in person, we will have that Resurrection Day celebration. So we're not skipping it this year, we're just postponing it this year, all right? Um, but since we've done that, and since all the coronavirus stuff has been going on, we've really had uh, schedules just get mixed up, and we've had to adjust on the fly to do things differently. And one of the things that God has done this week is He has brought all of our studies together in a way that I didn't understand when we planned it out earlier this month. Uh, In fact, I didn't realize it until Wednesday just how much all of our lessons are fitting together this week. If you've been tracking with us through our lessons, you know that on Tuesday night, Mark led us in a study from Acts chapter 10, and we learned there in Peter's vision that God declared all animals to be clean. On Thursday, we talked about giving and specifically tithing from the Old Testament. Is tithing uh, something that the Christian should do or not? Well, the answer, of course, is no. In the Old Testament, it was laid out for us what tithing was, uh, and it was for the people of Israel. And then um, it's also Passover weekend. It's, you know, for us, it's Resurrection Day, but for the Jews, this is Passover weekend. And what we're going to see today in Deuteronomy is a conversation about clean and unclean animals, about tithing, and about Passover. Isn't that amazing that God has tied all of this together in this way? I, I just think that's pretty pretty cool, and uh, it's neat to be a part of something like that. I want to remind you, too, before we jump into the text today, that on April 23rd, Thursday, April 23rd, we will have a live Q&A that... Uh, Tyler and Mark and I will be here on the stage answering your questions from Deuteronomy, the book of Acts, and the two lessons on giving. So if you have questions from today's sermon, if you have questions from any of our lessons, save those for Thursday, April 23rd at 7 p.m. on Facebook and on YouTube. We will be live to answer your questions from those studies, all right? Well, let's go ahead and pray and then jump into Deuteronomy chapter 14. Father, thank you so much for the certainty of our salvation that is directly tied to the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us on the basis of his works, that he did walk away from the grave, that we worship and serve a risen Savior. We can know Him, have a personal relationship with Him, and to know You for all eternity. God, we ask that today we would learn from Your Word because through the Gospel, the Holy Spirit has come into our lives and He is working to illuminate Scripture in our minds. He's working to cause us to understand. And we ask that through that power we would understand today as we look into Your Word and that we would uh, just have immediate application. Though this wasn't written for us, this wasn't written to us directly, that we would still find great application and great hope understanding how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we ask together that 
though I am a fallen sinner by nature and by choice, that I would be used to declare your word rightly and that your people would hear your word clearly today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be covering a lot in the book of Deuteronomy today. So I want to help you get into the mindset of lifting the plane to a 50,000-foot elevation. We started off the book of Deuteronomy all the way back in October, if you can believe that, and we started off kind of slow. There were moments here and there where we covered larger portions, but we've been covering uh, smaller chunks of Deuteronomy because of the rich theology that's in there. And the past few sermons from Deuteronomy, we've covered a whole chapter at a time. We've kind of lifted the plane from, you know, maybe more of a five or 10,000 elevation to 20 or 25. Well, today we're going up to 50, all right? You need to get into that mindset, otherwise you might be disappointed. We are going higher level and we are going to seek to cover chapters 14, 15, and 16 today three chapters from the book of Deuteronomy. So get into that mindset and also get into the mindset of understanding this book from a Christian worldview. We are not Jews. We are not living before the time of Christ. We are not the children of the Exodus generation. Though all that context is critical to understanding this book, it's also critical to understand that you're a Christian if you've believed in Jesus, that you are free from the law, that as Jesus declared, He came to fulfill it. And so we are looking back at this law from a position of understanding its fulfillment. And we want to see that today as we read through these chapters. Let's look at the first two verses of Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting with verse 1. This is going to set the tone for the sermon today. God declared to the children of Israel, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What we are going to see today from the law is that these details, these commands, these laws for Israel were all about them being set apart for God. All of these laws are about the people of Israel being set apart for God in the world. Notice that in these two verses that we just read, that well, particularly verse 2, that God calls Israel a holy people, a chosen people, a people possessed by God out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. That is the basis for the law, that they are owned by God, they've been chosen by God, and they are to be sanctified by God through the obedience to these commands. And there are two hows, not H-O-U-S-E, but H-O-W-S, there are two hows found in this chapter as to how they are to do that. The first one is found in verse 1. How are they set apart from all the other people on the earth? Verse 1 says, they shall not cut themselves or shave their foreheads. We don't know a lot about those things. We don't know what it means particularly in this context other than it seems as though there were some rites that were performed by the cultures around Israel, some rituals that were done, particularly when someone would die. The cultures would go through a period of mourning and they would scrape themselves or gash themselves or even tattoo themselves in ways. And they would cut their hair or shave or pluck their hair in certain ways. And right off the bat, God says, nope, you won't do those things. My people are not to do those things. And we get it just in a really brief statement there in verse 1. The second how that the Israelites were to be set apart starts in verse 3 and just continues on through uh, really the rest of the book. Um, But there's a big one from verse 3 all the way down through verse 21 having to do with food. And we learn about the dietary law of the Old Covenant here in Deuteronomy 14 as well as in Leviticus 11. So if you're taking notes, you can jot down Leviticus 11. It's kind of a sister passage to Deuteronomy 14. And in both of these chapters, we find God's prescription for Israel when it comes to what they could eat and not eat. And for us, 
Gentiles, people who have never put ourselves under such a law, this can seem really confusing. Uh, I know, for one, that when people ask me what Israelites were able to eat and not eat, it's like, okay, pigs. They couldn't eat pigs. And the reason I remember that is because I like to eat pigs, and so I can remember that one. Uh, and I can remember, you know, shellfish, uh, lobster, and things like that that they couldn't eat because I like eating that stuff too. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff I can't remember. And I'm thankful I've never had to keep track of all of that because I'm free from that in Christ. Yet there's a lot of detail surrounding what they could and could not eat, what was considered clean and what was considered unclean. In fact, if you look in verse 3 with me, Deuteronomy 14, verse 3, God says that they were not allowed to eat any detestable thing. So it wasn't just that they were to eat uh, these certain foods arbitrarily, here's a list of things that you can eat, and arbitrarily, here's a list of things that you can't eat. They were to consider certain foods to be an abomination. That's what that word detestable means. Those foods were an abomination to them. They were to stay away completely. Now, to help us kind of grasp that 50,000-foot view of the dietary law, there's a chart that I want to show you. I want to put it on the screen, and I want, to, want it to stay up there for quite some time. This is done by Daniel Block, uh, who I just love reading, especially his commentary on Deuteronomy. And in this chart, he lays out what is clean and what is unclean according to the Israelite tradition from the law that God gave them. Now, you'll see on here that there are certain things that are underlined, or I should say certain instances of the word all that are underlined. When you see the underlined all, that means that everything underneath it was permitted for them to eat. So in that first column all the way to the left, they could eat ox and sheep and goats and deer and on and on it goes. And they could eat fish, they could eat quail and dove and chicken, certain things. Um, those are the things that they could eat, but under the... Uh, alls that aren't underlined, they could not eat those things. And the other list, those are things that they could not eat. Uh, something else about this chart that's important to recognize is there are certain animals that are italicized. Those things that are italicized are not found in Scripture, but they are examples of what is outlined in Scripture. So, for example, Scripture doesn't talk about dolphins, seals, or sharks, or catfish, but the Israelites were not allowed to eat those fish because those were non-scaled fish, and the dietary law very, very clearly said that they could not eat uh, those types of fish. So those are just examples that Daniel Block gives us. Here in Deuteronomy 14, there are mammals and fish and birds all listed out, uh, with exceptions also listed, but this chart does a good job of capturing those things that they were allowed to eat or not eat. Now, looking at that chart, can't you say with me that you are so glad that you don't have to think about that? <laughs> I am so happy that I can just eat, period. And uh, we should never take that privilege for granted because if we were God's people for a few thousand years on the other side of the cross, we would not be able to enjoy many of the foods that we today do enjoy. Now, uh, Deuteronomy 14, verses 4 through 20, kind of go through uh, a lot of this. It describes all sorts of things they could eat or could not eat. And if you look down at verse 21 with me, you'll see a kind of wrapping up statement that adds a couple of more aspects to what they could and could not eat. Verse 21 says, "...you shall not eat anything which dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is in your town so that he may eat it." Or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. A couple of interesting prohibitions there, too. It's particularly interesting that an animal that dies of itself, uh, God says, give it to someone else. Uh, that person can eat it, but you are not allowed to eat it. That's an interesting clause found in that particular command. Now, what can we understand as Christians from all of these dietary prohibitions? Uh, well, first, we have to understand that it was God's foremost concern, and it should have been Israel's foremost concern, to bring glory to God's name in worshipful service to Him through these dietary laws. That by being set apart from the rest of the world in these certain dietary laws, 
they were bringing glory to God and they were worshiping Him rightly. Yet we can also recognize that there's always an aspect in God's good commands, there's always an aspect of God caring for us. So for instance, if you look at that chart again and you see the different things that they were not allowed to eat, well, those are things that they didn't know how to cook properly because they didn't know about a lot of the pathogens that could exist in those animals. Uh, Buzzards are listed and ravens are listed and vultures are listed. It's a good idea to not eat those things. There are lots of diseases found in those things. And so God, not only is He bringing glory to Himself, but He's also watching out for His children and giving them good commands that will help to keep them healthy and on the earth. Remember, part of God's promises to Israel as they went into this land is that they would not get certain diseases, but that their enemies would. The pagans that scoff at the law of God and said, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Well, they could certainly incur naturally certain diseases in that day by eating some of those animals. And that's an interesting thing that we we should pay attention to. Now, I want to kind of balance that because it's not all about just keeping uh, good care of the people. It's primarily about bringing glory to God by being set apart for His service. I remember that there was a a coach that I coached with uh, shortly after high school. I taught my alma mater, my junior high alma mater. I coached their basketball team in an assistant role. And the head coach there and I would get into some spiritual conversations. And he was a, an interim preacher. He would go around and fill pulpits in certain churches there in mid-Missouri. And he would say some things sometimes that even as a young Christian, I thought, that's crazy. Uh, you're a crazy person. And one of the things was about the dietary law. I remember one time he was talking about the Old Testament as though it was just you know, not, not even a thing we should pay attention to. And I said, well, you know, what do you think God was doing when He told the Israelites certain things? And his, his basic definition of this was, well, basically you had a bunch of Jews hanging out and uh, somebody ate bacon one day and the next day they found him dead and they said, don't eat bacon. And that was his summary of the dietary law was it was all just kind of made up by the Israelites as they saw people eat certain things, and then they decided, yeah, we shouldn't do that, so let's make a law against it. That's not what the dietary law is. The dietary law is actually all God's idea given to man, revealed to man as commands for them to follow to bring glory to His name in sanctification, worshiping Him and serving Him the right way. That's what the dietary law is all about. When you look at verse 22 and following through the end of the chapter, that section of the chapter is about tithing. I would direct you to our Thursday night study to read more about that. We covered this passage specifically on Thursday night. And to to sum it up, basically what's going on here is God tells His people to take a tithe every year from their produce, from their harvest, and even from some animals, and take it to the tabernacle, to the temple where God appoints them to go and to have a feast with the tithe from the produce of their ground. It was a tithe they were to observe annually. So they had dietary laws to uh, pay attention to, and they had tithing laws to pay attention to here in chapter 14. That's what's going on in Deuteronomy 14. Now, we want to understand Jesus' teaching on this and the apostles' teaching on it, because we're remember, we're looking at this from the standpoint of fulfillment. Jesus has fulfilled this. He's taught us something that has to do with the first uh, testament passing away, the first covenant uh, passing away that the new covenant might be inaugurated by His blood. And let's look together. Keep your finger here, but let's look together at Mark 7. Turn with me all the way to the New Testament, and let's look at Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 18. It's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark chapter 7, verse 18. And let's see what Jesus had to say about eating certain things. Now, this is coming after a, uh, a dialogue. Well, it wasn't really a dialogue, an interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees had accused the disciples of Jesus uh, for eating their bread with impure hands. 
they had an issue with Jesus' disciples not meticulously following some of the dietary laws um, and the ceremonial laws found in the First Testament. And the disciples, in Matthew's account, the disciples told Jesus, hey, do you know that you really bothered the, the uh, Pharisees whenever you said the things that you said back there, um, when you talked to them and told them that they weren't perfect keepers of the law? That really bothered them. Did you know that? And Jesus basically said, I don't care. And then he went on to teach the disciples some interesting stuff. So let's look together at Mark 7, starting at verse 18. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus says, what goes in does not defile a person. He, at that moment, it says in Mark's account, he was declaring all foods to be clean. Very, very different from what Deuteronomy 14 is telling us. Jesus says what comes out of a man, the, what comes out of the root of man's heart is what defiles him, not what goes in, not that hot dog that has a bunch of pork in it. That doesn't defile you. Well, it might defile you in different ways, but when what Jesus is teaching, it doesn't make you evil, all right? What comes out of the heart is what is evil and what defiles a person. Again, we saw on Tuesday night, as Mark led us in the study of Acts 10, we saw that in the New Testament, God declares all things to be clean. Peter sees a sheet coming down and has all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean, on it. And God says, go, eat. And Peter says, I can't eat that. That's unclean. And God says, don't reject what I've declared to be clean. So God is making a change. He's declaring a difference that these animals are clean. And then let me read to you. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared, uh, shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And look at this statement. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. In verse 5, it says, For that food is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. Could it be any clearer that the dietary laws of the Old Testament are not for us? And neither are the tithing laws that are also found in Deuteronomy 14. Again, check out the teaching from Thursday night to get more detail on that. But Christian uh, giving is not Jewish tithing. There's a big difference. Tithing was never commanded in the New Testament, but it was commanded over and over again to the children of Israel. Therefore, we should understand that Christ took care of these laws for us, and we are free from the, those laws. And yet, there's an important thing that we should note in this, and it's something that I was convicted of when I was reading uh, Daniel Block's commentary, specifically talking about the dietary laws. Uh, Block noted that when we eat meat, we are doing something that's very privileged and we should do it with reverence. He cited a uh, Babylonian proverb that says, every dinner table is an altar, meaning there was an animal that laid down its life that had to be killed for us to eat it. And we can sometimes just kind of not think about that because we're at the top of the food chain and, you know, animals are not made in the image of God. 
you know, we're all on board with that. So let's just, you know, who cares? Kill it, eat it, and uh, don't even think about it. It's important to think about this, especially as Christians who are free to eat all kinds of meat, that we have such a privileged diet uh, in world history because we have access to so many different types of animals and we have freedom in Christ to eat all these types of animals, that though we are free from the law, we should not lose our reverence for what God has given us the freedom to do. All right? Chapter 15. I don't know how much time I just took. This might be a two-hour sermon. I hope not. All right? Chapter 15. Let's maybe go to 60,000-foot view. We're going to talk about very different laws than what we just talked about. We're going to discuss laws of releasing or laws of forgiving. And uh, the first thing we need to know as we enter chapter 15 is that Israel was to consider their land and all that was in their land as a gift from God to be shared generously. As they lived in the land and enjoyed all the things God brought about in their lives, the Israelites were not to hoard it all for themselves and say, this is all great, this is all mine, and I am going to keep it. But instead, they were to see everybody in the community as a benefactor of God's good gifts. They were to be generous with any stewardship they were given within the land. And particularly when it came to finances and loaning people money, the Jewish people were not to act as creditors who sought personal gain in assisting their brothers. They were not to act as creditors with interest rates when they would give out loans to their brothers. And there's just one verse I want to read to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's Exodus 22:25. Exodus 22:25 says, "If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him, and you shall not charge him interest." That's the command that was given to the parents of the Deuteronomy generation, they were to not act as creditors. And that theme continues. Now, I will note that this has to do uh, with brother-to-brother interactions. If someone wanted to charge interest to a foreigner, they were free to do that. The law did not prohibit that. But as far as lending to another Jew, it had to be done uh, without interest. Because your brother, who just, you know, lives maybe uh, a few acres over there, he may have had a really bad harvest and he's unable to provide for his family that year. Well, out of love, you should help provide for his family and do not charge him interest. He's expected to pay it back. It's not like it's a gift every time, but don't charge him interest in order to make some sort of personal profit off of assisting your brother. And let's look at the first six verses of Deuteronomy 15 to get more thoughts on this. Deuteronomy 15 verse 1 It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. Now, that's pretty wild, isn't it? Uh, We don't have that in America, (laughs) but this was to be the way it was set up in Israel, a remission of debts. Verse 2, this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandment which I am commanding you today." For the Lord your God will bless you as He promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. One more thing to look at in Deuteronomy 15 is verse 12. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, it says this also, If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, Then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. So both of these concepts, the lending of money and the taking in of a uh, a fellow Hebrew as a servant, both of these concepts are tied to a seventh year called the sabbatic year. The seventh year in Israel's uh, life in the land, every seven years, there was to be a releasing of debt. 
and there was to be a releasing of servants. Isn't that an amazing concept that they were to graciously reset everything? And God says that by doing this, by listening to this command and obeying this command, there wouldn't be poor among them, and they would be able to lend to many nations but not have to borrow from those nations. They would take care of themselves. And amazingly, in uh, Israel's history, there was also to be a 50th, a special 50th year called the year of Jubilee. And you can read about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. But what that basically was is every seven sets of seven, so you've got a sabbatic year every seven years. Well, after 49 years, seven sets of seven, in that 50th year, the year of Jubilee, not only is there supposed to be a releasing debt, a releasing of servants, but also in that year there's to be no labor done. Everybody is supposed to just like chill for the whole year and to be released from the things that they owed. Can you not see God's good design in this? Can you not see how holy and just and good the law is and how amazing it would have been for a people to enter the land and to live this way forever? Of course, they couldn't because they were in bondage to their sin. But the law is so good in outlining this model for us. Well, you might start thinking, if I was living during that time, and say I had some stuff, say I was well off, and I was in a position to lend to somebody, I would want to know how close that sabbatical year is and how close the year of Jubilee is before I start handing out all my shekels. Because, um, you know, say, it's, say you are six and three quarters years into the cycle. You're just a few months away from all debts being released. Do you think you would think twice about lending someone a few thousand dollars, <laughs> knowing that the sabbatical year is coming? Well, that's your flesh, because look what the law says. The law actually addresses this because God knows all things and God is comprehensive, isn't He? Look at verse 9 with me. Deuteronomy 15, find verse 9. It says, "'Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your hand. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That God would make a provision like that in the law, getting ahead of people's thoughts and saying, Don't go there. Don't get all base in your mind. Notice it says that it's a base thought. And it also says it's a hostile thought. Get hostile, but instead maintain a spirit of generosity with your brother. Now look with me down in verse 13, talking about the slave that you're to set free, your kinsman. Look at what provisions are made here. It says in verse 13, when you set the servant free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat, you shall give him or give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Drop down to verse 18. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. They were to maintain a spirit of grace and generosity and favor with one another. And in exchange, it says, God would bless them. So don't start thinking, God says to the Israelites. Don't start thinking all uh, carnally that, well, I can't do that because then I'll lose money. And, you know, okay, it's been, it's been six years with this slave. I guess I got to let him go and be all grumpy about it and send him away empty-handed. God says, no, lend 
generously and treat your slave great. Dress him up and send him with a care package and say thank you. Give him a, a nice big round of applause because of his work. God says, Think that way because I'm the one who's going to provide for you. You're not the one who's providing for himself. That's proud thinking. I'm the one who provides for you. Therefore, live generously. Live in such a way that you're taking care of those in the land in this specific way. Wow. Wow. Again, they couldn't do it, uh, obviously. Jesus came and fulfilled this law for us. They could have never done this on their own. But can't you see how good God's law is? And when people talk about, well, there was slavery in the Old Testament, uh, you know, that, that slavery, um, that's why we had American slavery. They were just reading their Bibles, and so they were implementing in America what's in the Bible. Nope. Slavery and indentured servanthood in the Bible was quite different than what we have come to know slavery as being. Look at just... Uh, Let's see, verse 16 with me. Same chapter, verse 16. God says, It shall come about if the servant says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also, you shall do likewise to your maidservant. How could a slave, how could a servant ever say, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. It's because the type of slavery and the type of servanthood that we see in the Old Testament law was good. God designed it. God commanded it. It was good and it was healthy and it was a a joyful privilege to engage in it. it. We just don't even want to go there in our minds, but God's law is good and holy in all that it says. There's one more thing that the Israelites are called to release here in chapter 15. Start in verse 19 with me. They were to give up and release some animals. It says in verse 19, "...you shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and of your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it every year before the Lord your God." in the place which the Lord chooses. Giving up a spotless firstborn for the sake of the Lord. Setting it apart, not to shear it, not to have it for personal use, but to save that spotless firstborn for consuming in the place that the Lord chooses with His people at a certain time. It had to be done. And that would be painful, to be sure, in some cases. Uh, For instance, it might be a sheep that grows really good wool, and you want to save it and just have that sheep continue to produce wool. God says, don't shear it, save it, and then kill it for me. Sacrifice it for me. It was an act of worship toward God. Now, how do we understand these laws in chapter 15 in light of Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching as we transition to a new covenant mindset inaugurated by the blood of Jesus? Well, based on those verses we just read about the spotless firstborn, can't you see Jesus in that? (laughs) Jesus was spotless and set apart, wasn't He? He was sanctified in the world. And He's actually called multiple times in the New Testament God's firstborn. Not that He was the one who was first created or first literally born, but being the eternal God, He is the firstborn over all creation. He has that authority, that honor, that uh, privilege and power as the firstborn. When we talk about the animals and the firstborn of the animals, we really do mean literally the first one born. But when we talk about Jesus being firstborn, it's kind of like David being firstborn. He's king and He has all authority. And Jesus is spotless. Jesus No sin in Jesus, but totally sanctified, separate from the world. And He was sacrificed on our behalf. The spotless firstborn was sacrificed for us that we might have fellowship with God, just like that spotless firstborn that they were to uh, sacrifice every year provided them that opportunity to fellowship with God in the place that He chose. That's the first thing we can notice. But what about all the laws about forgiving debts? 
That one's pretty obvious too, isn't it? <laughs> forgiving debts. How, how did Jesus fulfill laws about forgiving debt and releasing slaves? Well, if you, if you haven't connected the dots, I'm privileged to tell you. In Jesus, all of our debts are forgiven. All of our spiritual debts, the important ones, the ones that have eternal impact, all of those debts are forgiven in Christ. And we, as slaves to sin, are totally released, and we have an eternal year of jubilee being released to enjoy God forever because Jesus paid our debt. And we are kind of like uh, that slave that chose to stay. You know, the, the slave, if he wanted to stay with the master, he would get stamped, he would uh, have a mark, and he would be with his master forever. Well, Jesus forgives our debt, releases us from being slaves to sin, causes us to be slaves to God, and gives us His mark that we might be with Him forever, that we are eternally united to God by faith in Jesus. This is just a a shadow in Deuteronomy 15 of the great spiritual reality that we see in the fulfillment of Jesus' work on our behalf. Keep your finger here, but turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Look at the way that Paul talks about the law and its fulfillment in Christ. Are there principles in Deuteronomy for us to learn from and be convicted about? Certainly, yes. And there are things in the law, because it's holy and good and just, there are things in the law that we can look at and say, wow, um, that's provoking me to want to be holier because the law itself is holy. That's provoking me to, be, want, to, to want to be more like that because the law is good and just. However, we have to always remember that the fulfillment of that law is in Christ alone, that Our obedience to that law doesn't earn us anything, but Christ perfectly obeyed the law, fulfilling it, and He has given us all that He has earned that we might be righteous because of His work alone. Look with me at Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. And and just think about Deuteronomy when you see this. It says, "...when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." He, God, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This makes me want to just like jump up and down and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Like in 2 Corinthians 5, when Paul says, we're out of our minds for Christ. If you are connecting the dots here, doesn't this make you excited? That Jesus has fulfilled this, and it's a shadow of what He did. That the debts that we are forgiven of are so much more than the debts that we could owe another human being. We owed a debt to God, a spiritual, eternal debt that could only be paid for through an eternal payment, Jesus exchanging His life for ours on the cross, and that's God canceling the debt, nailing it to the cross. And all of these things that we read in the law are just a shadow. They're a shadow of the substance, the substance which is Christ. We're recording this on Good Friday. The day, according to the Jewish calendar, the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross on our behalf. And we're broadcasting this on Resurrection Sunday. (laughs) And when we look at that work of Jesus in that span of just a few hours, a few days, that He died on the cross in our place for our sins, 
and He walked away from the grave, we see the substance of everything that God has revealed. We find knowledge and wisdom. We find hope and life. We receive righteousness because of what Jesus has done. And the law is just a shadow that comes before the substance, which is Christ. Man, we have to do another chapter. Chapter 16, Deuteronomy 16. One last discussion, and this discussion is perhaps the most pertinent for us today, seeing that it is Passover weekend. These are laws about feasts, including the Feast of Passover. Let's look at the first eight verses of chapter 16, and this will be the last section we'll read in Deuteronomy, starting at verse 1, Deuteronomy 16. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish His name. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt." For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset, at the time that you came out of Egypt. You shall cook it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Passover. You may not know it because it's not really prominent in Utah, but in a variety of places around America and certainly throughout the world, there have been Jews eating Passover uh, in the last few days. The Passover cedar, the special meal as described here in these verses, is still observed by many, many Jewish people today, though very few of them recognize the original design that God had in that meal in reminding them of their uh, miraculous deliverance out of the land of Egypt. We can say about Passover, to give a summary statement, that Passover was a celebration of the Israelites' deliverance, a meal appointed in a certain place. So Passover specifically remembered uh, the time that the um, angel passed over Jewish households in the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn of every Egyptian family who did not sacrifice a lamb for the Lord. It's a celebration of their deliverance out of that place, out of slavery, to be brought into a promised land. That's one of the meals that's discussed here in chapter 16. The second meal that's discussed in chapter 16 is the uh, Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. You can also call this Pentecost. Pentecost. It is a feast that begins 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. And uh, we call it Pentecost because the etymology, the origin of the word Pentecost is linked to 50 units, 50 days. And what this feast required was a pilgrimage of all the males in Israel to go to the place God chose, which ended up being Jerusalem, to make sacrifices like with the other feasts. And in particular, the Feast of Weeks was a harvest celebration uh, celebrating the wheat that God would give. This would come at the time of the wheat harvest, and they would go to Jerusalem, and there would be wave offerings and other offerings performed in that place to recognize this feast. And a third feast mentioned here, there are three annual feasts in Israel, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and now the third, the Feast of Booths. And you can also call this the Feast of Tabernacles. This was another harvest feast that celebrated uh, the olives and the grapes that God would provide. It was at the end of their harvest. 
and it was a celebration of God's provision in the land. Now, what was different about the Feast of Tabernacles or booths is that it was eight days long. And so they would take tents with them and live in those tents during that time of celebrating. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have to take their own tabernacles uh, with them to stay in those shelters over the period of eight days. Okay, those are the feasts that are outlined in chapter 16 that they were to observe each and every year in the land that God gave them. Now, uh, One last time, we want to transition in our minds to Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching as we are living in a new covenant inaugurated by the blood of Christ. Thinking of the Feast of Passover, what a great time to think of the Feast of Passover. We find in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover We don't go out and slaughter lambs on Passover weekend anymore because at a Passover weekend about 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the final Passover lamb that was slaughtered for all of mankind. He was sacrificed once for all as the final lamb to be killed by men. Luke 22, verses 7 and 8. I want to take your mind to the Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 7 says, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. What is the context in which the Last Supper was inaugurated? Well, it was inaugurated on Passover weekend. They were all talking about the lamb that had to be sacrificed. They were all talking about this special meal that had to be observed. And Jesus says, I'm giving you a new ordinance. I'm giving you a new meal. And you are to do this in remembrance of me. Because Jesus was going to be, in just a matter of hours, He was going to be delivered up as the final Passover lamb. And you can just imagine... Peter and John and the others as devout Jews sitting there thinking about Passover and understanding all those dietary laws that we covered earlier when Jesus says, this is my body, feast on it. And when He says, this is my blood, drink it. Not only were they to stay away from dead bodies, they weren't supposed to be eating that. They weren't supposed to be eating blood in any context. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, no matter what the animal is, God says, don't eat the blood. Don't eat the animal with its blood, but pour the blood out on the ground. And here comes Jesus as the Passover lamb and says, drink my blood. Because this sacrifice is the final sacrifice. And they are to remember it in that meal, this new meal that reflects back on Jesus' final offering as our Passover lamb. What about the Feast of Weeks? What about Pentecost? Well, if you think about that first century Passover where Jesus was slain, what happened at the Feast of Weeks 50 days after Jesus was killed? Well, 50 days after the final Passover lamb was slain and the Feast of Weeks was taking place in Jerusalem, Pentecost was happening, God poured out His Spirit and there was a harvest that day, wasn't there? It says in Acts 2 that when Peter went to preach, it was the day of Pentecost. It was the day of that feast. And that feast celebrated the wheat harvest. And here it is. The the field was ready for harvest, Jesus taught us in Matthew 9. He taught His disciples that the field is white, ready for harvest. And there goes Peter, who heard that teaching in Matthew 9. He was right there with Jesus, and he was used by Jesus to preach and to reap a harvest that day as 3,000 souls were saved. And God gave to us His Holy Spirit. God gave us Himself. He was poured out on those believers, and they were changed at the Feast of Weeks at Pentecost. Well, what about that last 
What about that last feast, that last annual feast? The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Well, what were the, the Jews doing during that feast year after year? They would go to Jerusalem, they would take their tents, these Jewish males would be in their tabernacles. And what were they doing? Well, they, of course, were celebrating the grapes and the olives. They were celebrating the harvest. They were uh, enjoying to some level fellowship with each other with this feast. But spiritually speaking, big picture speaking, you know what they were doing? They were waiting for their Messiah. Year after year, in observing this feast that Christians do not observe, they were waiting for their Messiah who would come and make that feast null and void who would fulfill the law. They were dwelling in their tabernacles, waiting for the Messiah. And though Jesus has come and redeemed us and given us eternal life, do you know that we too still dwell in tabernacles and wait for our Messiah? As redeemed children of God, we are just waiting in tents, these tents of human bodies, waiting for the second appearance of the Messiah, that we too are waiting for Him to come and to deliver us from this place. We're going to end in 2 Corinthians 5, my favorite chapter in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to see how Paul talks about dwelling in tents, just like they would for multiple days during the Feast of Miracles. So in our day too, day after day, year after year, we dwell and we wait for our Messiah. Start, in, start with me in verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I should read that again. I didn't have good prose there. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave, a, gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We are longing for heaven in these tents, in these tabernacles of human flesh, longing to be clothed with what is heavenly, what comes from above. We are longing for what is mortal to be swallowed up in victory by He who is immortal. We are longing for the day that our Messiah comes again and delivers us from these bodies of death, that all things will be finally summed up in Christ, the one who died for us on our behalf as the Passover lamb and the one who rose again as a roaring lion and walked away from the grave, our Lord, our King, our Savior. He's coming back and He will deliver us and He will give us our inheritance, eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank You again. For this day, thank you for celebrations that we have, like Resurrection Day, where we can particularly think back to your goodwill, to your providence, to your sovereign 
holiness, and goodness that has interrupted our lives in the most wonderful way. Lord, we thank You for Jesus' final sacrifice, that it's enough and that it is finished. And we thank You for His resurrection, that we have hope and that we have life because He lives. Lord, we love You and we thank You. And we ask that You would give us patience and wisdom in the coming days as we long to be together again here in this place, gathered corporately, singing Your praises with one voice. Give us patience. Give us hope. Cause us during this time to understand more and more that this earth and the tabernacles we have here are not the end of all things, but there is something greater coming when our Messiah returns and brings us home. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.